I mean, that's what happens to black music. It just, it gets gutted and used for everyone's purposes outside of its context. I mean, and that's, I'm always fine to share it. And that's actually, I mean, what this book is about. It's telling people, I mean, that if you want to know what the PSYOP of America is, it's that black music is free and open for everyone. It's that black music is open source. And when I look at industrialized labor and where we've all fit into it, I mean, that's why I call myself speaker music. I'm an open source technology that you kind of point it to like my Twitter presence. And see, the thing is, I'm not on, I'm not on Twitter. That's not the Forrest Brown Jr. That's a bot. That is, that's a, that's like the Joker in the Dark Knight, like, you know, sending his like message to the people or whatever. It's, um, Ting actually brings up all the time. She's like, oh, don't fight with people online. And it's like, oh, I'm not fighting. I'm showing people arguments. If I play through these arguments with people, if I write these essays, I can elucidate and, and, and illuminate all of these war strategies that exist. And I mean, rhetoric and, and, and discourse, you know, a la like Bakhtin is, is a kind of warfare. Um, and I mean, I learned that from arguing with people on Facebook down south over like gun laws and stuff where like, like they're not changing their mind. I see them on Facebook right now, like glitching out over like whether the assault of the state capital is like justified and it's um no it's like all i ever want to do with social media is just yeah illustrate the lived algorithms of people's experiences where they kind of just yeah i mean now everyone's tired of hearing craft work and bits of techno if i can just saturate that that like that cliche i can saturated, you know, cliche. I can't be on the record saying anything. What's that sound? Hey, want to hear the most annoying sound in the world? The proposition sounds intriguing. The proposition sounds very attractive. I tell you, it's a thoroughly sound proposition. Seems a sound proposition, what brought you here? Brown Jr., a media theorist, lecturer, curator, and I produce digital audio and digital media as speaker music. Sometime this fall, primary information will be releasing my first book, Assembling a Black Counterculture. I was pretty deep into the book before George Floyd was murdered, but afterwards, I kind of stopped for a second and was like, you know, I need to like see what America's gonna do before I finish this. Cause I had an ending in mind. It was going to end in 2010 when uh, Clone Records started reissuing Drexia. And I was going to make it quite clear that the Dutch record label did not properly uh, mark in their press releases what the story of Drexia was. Of, you know, African men, women, and children being thrown overboard into the ocean during the transatlantic slave trade. and. 
kind of stating, tre treating like the, the clone releases as like an artifact from like a lost civilization being like kind of refinanced um, as like techno was being re refinanced as like a, in the, in the second dot-com boom, if you will. But yeah, after George Floyd was murdered, and I watched that footage more times than I should probably like say to anybody, but it was from various angles. And you know, I, I started to kind of realize that I don't think the unity's coming. Um, and it's not to be negative, but it's a sense where I, like, I look at my own family and there was an interesting gathering moment where before the pandemic, I got to go to Alabama and like hang out with my family. But that was in January. But as soon as I got there, there was an unarmed black man that was killed at the local mall that I would buy all of my music from when I was in high school. Um, and so there were protests down there. And I was like, wow, that's never happened before when I was a kid. Um, and then, yeah, it's... No, it, it's kind of, it's funny, Black Nationalist Sonic Weaponry, I was going to do it anyway. I, it was actually going to come out next year, or this year. Um, and it wasn't, it was meant to be this like sonic attack, but it wasn't meant to be so, uh, I'll use the word provocative here. It wasn't meant to be as provocative as it ended up being. But, because I was going to work on it slowly, like really slowly and try to build it and compose it. But what ended up happening was after George Floyd, I put down the book, took some shrooms and like recorded it all in two days in like live sessions after like recording like the protests. And I got my cousin um, who I got to see in New York just before the pandemic, um, who's this 18 year old who was coming up here to like yeah, audition for Juilliard and like Tisch School of the Arts and stuff. And yeah, I hadn't seen her since she was a kid. And it was a thing where I saw her post an Instagram video of the poem, of herself performing the poem that starts the album, and was like, you know, be on the album, like, can you send me anything? And she's like, oh, you can just sample this. Too tight. Too tight. In the hands of his oppressor, he feels the burden of his people's strife. She knows that if she dies, the man who so viciously took her life will be able to go home that very same night. Joyfully eat dinner with his kids and wife and kiss them goodnight. Forgetting the little girl who he just made a memory. No more movie nights and dinners with her daddy. Kisses from her mommy. Dreams of who she would be. He might remember the doll that lay next to her. How it too had six bullets lodged into it. Life was as it once was with she. No, she will experience lifelessness for the first time. Because he had a bad day, a quarter to me, a fellow racist cop friend to please ask about his day at work, he'll say, another day doing what's right. To him, justice is controversial, so he warns them of the news and tells them what happened through his eyes that night. A man can only be this comfortable speaking of murder when he precisely knew their names will remain unheard of. Stop looking for validation and seek more routes to build our people's outlook on our current situation. They can't survive without us. Yet they continue to kill people that look like me and you because they think our lives are worthless. You are worthless and the price tag placed on my life will be worthless when it comes to judgment day and they gotta compare the crimes of the heart that were worthless. Maybe they think it hurts less. Killing a black man, 
Maybe they think less tears will shed finding out a little black boy or girl will never run on the playground again. Maybe they think it's less than ideal, but not too surreal, and she never gets to hold her kids again. I'm sick of this. Society keeps labeling murder as police brutality in the media. Every social platform I can think of, seeing my people killed so my eyes keep bleeding. Ears won't stop ringing. I'm hearing the cries of the people they didn't get the chance to be. Our murders are swept up in a swift of philanthropy. Donating money to the projects, I guess that makes a man to be. A man to be seen in the eye of the public as a savior. Only from a distance gripping the necks of the people who lay unwavered, his spirit will be immortal. But the man who took his life speaks to murder, and his wife looks at the hashtag, acting as if she's never heard of these incidents. If you simply question the morality of it, that's not enough to me. You're a part of the problem for not wanting to speak. So don't be uncomfortable when you've seen us bleed and did nothing to heed our pain. Another soul ripped away. Another mind full of words they'll never get to say because their life was stripped and turned into the ashes that peacefully sway within the tides on the docks of America's Bay. On the stretcher, yet the limbs of a body that once was seemed to shrink up. No more life flowing through them and the family can't think of a reason beneath the tree sign and hate behind his murder. They wish they could say this was a concept they'd never heard of, but daily we unwillingly become martyrs unheard of. They say, why do they hate us like this? Why do they hate us like this? Maybe because our black skin brings gems to the earth. Countless gifts. the first to inhabit it, but treat it as if we don't belong in it. Too tight. Their grip is too tight, but my people keep fighting. Too tight. Their grip is tight, but my people will survive this and thrive in a way that demands ignorance to stop being labeled as bliss. We don't need your validation. Watch us climb our way to the top of our own nation. You know, I gathered up some some of the money that I had just just had, and I started, you know, paying for just what what I had. I was paying, you know, for people to feature in the record, to write articles for the magazine uh, that came with the album, to kind of just to get a sense of like what they were feeling in the moment. And then all the labels proceeds went to movement for Black, black Lives and Black Emotional and Mental Health, and that was kind of me attempting to yeah do this gathering while in a long form I was writing this history of Black people and Black music in America from both 1553 and 1619 until present. You know, it's a thing where I started looking at my family and looking at all the different places that they were and realizing that, you know, the two migrations, the two great Black migrations in the 40s and again in like the 80s, like, like from South to North and North to South, like it, it completely distorted my family um and I'm lucky that in Alabama like I can like my great-grandfather was a slave until 1930 and like built a house with his hands and I grew up in that house and slept in the bed that he like died in like from age five to ten and it was a thing where like that house is the last relic of the large family that I used to see like every Thanksgiving that would like gather and so it admittedly I've been thinking a lot about what future is there and what kind of gathering is possible. And so at this point, the book is kind of becoming what sadly and hopefully will be a tell-all at the end of America. And I guess maybe that's the silver lining here is that in the end, 
a story will be told that the story of America will be told. I mean, do this real anthropological and sociological and economic study of black people and like understanding who we are as a as an abstract decentralized nation of people across North America, the North American continent, which is why I named the record Black Nationalist Sonic Weaponry. It's, it's me carrying the nation with me after I leave. Um, because I can't, I can't do it anymore. Um, and I can't, I mean, I can't walk outside without seeing complicity in a way that I never thought I'd see before. It was really, like, I went to college with, like, uh, the Alabama Shakes and Civil Wars and, like, thought about that, thought about a band called The Civil Wars, like, one day playing, like, the local record store garage and then the next day being on NPR and winning a Grammy, like, it just... <laughs> well, people... Oh, well, people in that town would do Civil War reenactments, like in full costume. So it's a thing where, no, I mean, when I told people I was moving to New York and I moved specifically because of the gun laws down there and the way people on Facebook were responding to the school shootings by being like, I have a, yeah, yeah. I mean, they sell them in Walmart down there. And so it's a thing where like, I heard a lot of people telling me when I was like, guys, in like 2013, when I was like, guys, I'm getting out of here, I'm moving to New York. They were like, the South will rise again. And um, I've seen a lot of people I went to college with become Trump supporters. I've seen them. They're not necessarily radicalized, but I, I've been watching how they handle situations like the attack in the Capitol. And primarily white people are having a real tautological kind of like glitch response to white supremacy, mostly because unfortunately, most white Americans are white nationalists. Um, and which is both the same and quite kind of different, quite different from white supremacy. Well, that's the thing. That's the other lie that America's been telling itself and why I felt so confident in releasing a record titled Black Nationalist Sonic Weaponry, <laughs> um, is that, no, that's a lie. Uh, America is a white, it's a white nationalist ethnostate and it always has been. The thing that happened was in 18, like 60, whatever, when like the Civil War was happening, it was over the fact that, I mean, you think about Harriet Tubman and like the Underground Railroad and stuff, you can't just have slaves like literal technology and capital like popping up across a border because like the union and the confederacy were two different nation states and so that's the equivalent of like last year when um what was it about like multi multiple billions of dollars of like coke was found on a ship um owned by like chase jp morgan and chase or whatever um it's quite similar to that where like you have these like black people who can't read, write, or speak any language popping up in your, like, in the nice town of, like, Detroit. <laughs> um, it's, <laughs> I mean, the war was fought over this inventory leaving, this, like, 
this loss of like literally it's like literally like your bank account just like got up and started walking away um which is also where our modern police force comes from to see slave patrols that would go and capture these slaves and like bring them back to be you know to be slave labor and anyway when the confederacy lost this war the union made a made a compromise with them which how do I put this simply? Basically, the Electoral College was put into place to make sure that the Black people, which are technically not categorized as human legally, could never sway the vote in any way, shape, or form. Like, specifically, the Civil War was fought over consensus and whether or not Black people would count as a population. I mean, the, this, my book is about techno, but it's also about Black infrastructure and the actual idea of, like, showing what the Black nation is, like, structurally, economically, and uh, politically and such. Because, uh, so, my dad is a business economics professor at a historically Black college, um, and <laughs> I use him kind of as an interesting example because he actually would go... While in college, he went to uh, Alabama Agricultural and Mechanical University, which is the same university that Sun Ra went to. And I should also mention that Sun Ra's from my town, um, in my neighborhood. And my great, I actually found out recently that my grandfather owns the house of John T. Fess Watley, who taught Sun Ra how to play trumpet, and called me Professor, who, which was John T. Fess Watley's nickname. Um, so that's a lot of what my work is, is literally taking the teaching, the thing that was taught to Sun Ra, and like being like, okay, now that Sunrun's dead, like let's go back a scale and let me show you something you've never seen before. And um, but with all of that, my dad does a lot of well, my mom as well as a social worker, she deals a lot with like, you know, runaway teens, particularly black teens that are very vulnerable to human trafficking, which are, you know, which is still the entrails of the transatlantic slave trade working and moving. It's just moving in a different way. Um and it's funny, I was talking to my dad about this stuff as an economics professor, and he doesn't really give a shit about Marx. And that's the funny thing about the critical race theory argument right, that's happening right now and saying that it's a neo-Marxist praxis is that my dad is referring to W.E.B. Du Bois and, and the Black Reconstruction Movement from 1860 to 1880, but he's also referring to Booker T. Washington, who started Tuskegee University and named the region that I'm from in the Deep South, the Black Belt, based on the fact that after the Emancipation Proclamation, there were basically white people were outnumbered because they every white male had about 10 slave, like African slaves. So there were 10, for every one white person, there were 10 black people. And once that freedom kind of happened or supposedly happened, there was a sort of a census shift that was due to occur. And the reason that, you know, the Union forces of the North pulled a scorched earth policy on the south and kind of like wiped out all the infrastructure was because they were trying to deal with the fact that every white male had 10 living bodies that were supposed to count towards a census and thus spread out the wealth that was being accumulated in the south as well as congressional votes well yeah we're talking about the legalities of of voting and when and when trump you know and giuliani point to wayne county detroit when they points to Georgia and say that there are, uh, are illegitimate votes and voter fraud happening there, 
he's talking about the black, the black people who vo voted in an election for the first time since the Obama elections. When I get into black nationalism, especially sonically and obviously within the book, I'm trying to build up the actual like underbelly of our legal system and of our uh, infrastructural system and go, well, here's a whole nation you don't know about yet and that will survive when the market finally crashes. I mean, we still have my great-grandfather's house. We own the land, like we own the guy who taught Sun Ra how to play Trump. We own his house, it's across the street. There's a school up the street from there um, that was started by a woman named Carrie A. Tuggle. Um, who, she started that school for homeless black boys and it's 90, in a 95% black school, school congressional district. And she's actually buried in front of the school. Um, and when I was a kid, we would like, they'd have all the kids like hold hands and like pray around her body, around her like uh, grave um, before the start of the school year. No, and it's one of those interesting things where when I was a kid, I was telling my partner this, that like bomb threats would happen sometimes where, and I, I would be like, you know, seven years old and not know why we would have to go have school at the church down the street. But as I got older, I was like, oh, this is a continuation of the 50 bombings that happened between 19, I believe it was 1945 and 1965, um, where white supremacists in the FBI bombed this, my particular neighborhood 50 times leading up to the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing to destroy this infrastructure and to just to destroy the evidence of these, of black home ownership and black school ownership. and. Yeah, when I'm talking about black nationalism, I'm being very material about it and not, um, this is not Wakanda or Black Panther. Like I'm not beholden to, to Stan Lee, some white man's like vision of black people. It's like literally my home. It's interesting because ultimately, I think a lot of people are unaware that the financial exchange business is warfare. It's modern warfare and real estate is the grounds through which you can uh, sort of calculate your wins and your extended boundaries of safety and security. And so, yeah, again, with black nationalism, I'm trying to like really like build a wall. Like I'm actually trying to create a, I'm trying to segregate it. Maybe I should just like say it like I didn't meet white people in earnest until I was like 18 years old. So I don't have the attachments to whiteness that I think a lot of people have. When I moved to New York, like I was literally meeting Ivy Leaguers for the first time and literally meeting Midwesterners for the first time and, and trying to like deracinate and understand why people acted like a characters from the, sh like from Friends or characters from Hey Arnold. Like what people called hipsterism, like I, or hipsterdom or whatever, I did not understand a hipster because like culture is legitimate where I'm from and there is no irony, there is no... Uh, I mean, in fact, there is no counterculture because we're only counter to white Americans where I'm from. Alabama's got me so upset Tennessee made me lose my rest And everybody knows about Mississippi God damn. 
Yeah, I mean, the continuity, a lot of it comes from the fact. So I, I talked about the Sunrock connection and the school, but the TFS Watley guy was the second band leader for Carrie Tuggle Elementary School and uh, taught many people how to play trumpet and or in various other instruments, but trumpet in particular, and actually set up a kind of, I'll call it a trade route or like a farming system for sending uh, musicians to different schools and universities around the state and then eventually sending them up north to join people like Duke Ellington's bands. And so when Duke Ellington would go over to Europe with, um, and you know, the sort of Cold War propaganda, state funded, you know, jazz music program, those were a lot of Alabama people who TFS Watley intended to use music as a way to spread Birmingham jazz, but to also to fucking survive, to make a living. Cause there's the only options you have down there is to work in a factory. And I say that as someone who like was a truck driver and was working in like warehouses to pay for college and the Amazon fulfillment center that the workers were unionizing, that's in my neighborhood. And that's where I would probably be working right now if I hadn't left. So yeah, a lot of the music I was kind of imagining really had nothing to do with my time in New York. If anything, it was incomplete. And to the, like, it was an attack on my time in New York, an attack on the people that I met while I was in New York and kind of going back to my roots back home and being like, look, I don't know you guys. Like, I don't, you know. It's funny, I had a conversation with my dad recently where he was like, you know, you have a very global mind and I have a very local mind. And I thought a lot about that and about how I'm a prodigal son that really shouldn't have left and should not have interacted with the outside world. And that white liberals, white conservatives are not prepared for integration in any way, shape or form. Um, and that's kind of been my message. I can hear them ciphering ill intent in sharp, sharply poised and manageable bits. I think they call this technique being polite. Or at other times, being honest. I'm uncertain how this technique affects the interior backstages of their lives. What is etiquette for the whites when they aren't on the stage? Yeah, that was a really interesting project because initially I wrote an essay called Absent Personae that was in a group show um, in Liverpool. I believe that was in 2016. And that's actually where I met Kepler. He reached out and was like, whoa, your essay on that sort of connected uh, more brilliant than the sun, sun Ra, Drexia, and kind of all of this, you know, black historical speculative material together was, was interesting and he wanted to kind of, you know, find out more of what was in there. And it just so happened that that year I had been working at Mixmag as a as the East Coast editor. Um, they had the brilliant idea of trying to colonize the U.S. They, they opened an office in L.A. and then New York and were trying to uh, yeah, cut in on the EDM bunny and me being the one like black employee that there, I was like, guys, this isn't country music is the most popular music in, in America. Like this isn't going to work. 
maybe we should take a local approach and like, you know, approach local venues, try festivals like Mokefest or Big Ears and, you know, try to integrate into the sort of niche touring market or, or festival market that exists while also maybe trying to establish a touring route for electronic musicians. Um, as opposed to, you know, making a bunch of media ad dollars off of a short-lived, you know, youth movement that was <laughs> that was spurred by an economic crash in, you know, monopoly drink funding or like beer and energy drink funding. Um, and yeah, they didn't like that very much and I wasn't a culture fit. So after about six months, they cut me from the staff. <clears throat> and so I lost everything. I basically was like on my last leg before I like lost my apartment. Um, and that summer, a lot of the police killings had started up. <clears throat> and that really just sent me into a spiral. Um, I believe like Birth of a Nation was supposed to come out that year as well. Um, the Nate Turner story. And then there was the whole controversy with the with the director and it just, yeah, reached a really, a really dark phase. And <laughs> Kepler was still, you know, wanting to work together. So I was like, cool, let's, let's go in there. If you're, you know, <clears throat> as like a, as a Chinese, like, you know, uh, British guy, if he's, if he's ready to, to be an ally and go in there, let's go. Cause I mean, at the time, no one was really, Maybe More Mother was kind of just getting started with this sort of uh, practice. And I mean, obviously, if like the Black Audio Film Collective that have been doing sort of passive, and I'll, I'll call it passive studies into the nature of Blackness um, as a historical and economic material for modernity. The Western world has a history of this, though, which is interesting. Because, I mean, for one, the church that was bombed were four little girls, and my aunt was supposed to be a fifth, but she just so happened to move to Detroit that day, and later went on to become a music teacher and teach a bunch of dudes who would end up in, like, a Carl, in Carl Craig's, like, jazz orchestra. That he, I think it's called Inner Zone Orchestra. Oh, yeah, I mean, that's the thing about the Black nation that I keep trying to iterate is that, like, it's all over the place. Um, it. it there's, there's so much, like, I, there's so much. Remembers everything the country forgot. Bloodstained sweat slip not. Stop with her chain. More often than not, the gaze the same. Terror to rain. Price on your organs, clock on your brain. The blues remembers everything the country forgot. Hands in the rod, slot in a swat, lynch swinging on the block. There goes the neighborhood. Here comes mama with the clock. Bang, bang. It has a certain glamour. I like that you said obliterate it because that's kind of what the 19th century was for the Western colonial project in a lot of ways. And I would say that World War One and Two are direct results of like 
the various economic crashes that happened in like 1823 <clears throat> and then later on towards the end of the 1800s leading into like yeah i guess like mass industrialization in, in america i mean a lot of the reason these insurrections are happening here is because america like i mean like you're kind of saying found itself on this nation it was like actually this is ours and it's kind of an interesting psychosis that i think should maybe be addressed across the western world that perhaps we've done or a certain genetic line has done so much damage and trauma that yeah the western world is almost whole in its fragmented state and the sooner we i mean martin luther king one of his last essays actually uh the world house he kind of talks about this and calls for like what he calls a global unity but i mean it was really just a unity of the western world and europe coming to understand that america is not just a bank that america grew or that europe grew itself out of the roman empire america is this like startup that gouged a bunch of a bunch of wealth for it and then decided to become an independent like i guess like warship like bank or whatever like i don't know what they really call america like i think of it as like the death star but also like yeah but also like like i don't know like wall street at the same time yeah it's the plausible deniability i mean the thing is and this is one way that i know that america is kind of the center of this is because everyone's getting trained under a certain tactical mindset and a tr and this these weapons are coming from people that like to kill and have killed for a long time <laughs> and it's i mean what what the colonizers would do in to the natives mostly in the 19th century but kind of in the 18th century as well was they pollute disinformation into the population assassinate the tribal leader and yeah i mean it just disinformation attack disinformation attack pollute the like the the food supply and they would just keep doing it they did it in vietnam they did it with i'll say the crack up academic across inner city black neighborhoods during the you know disco revolution and the birth of house and techno um yeah it's like literally dismantling black communities one thing worth saying is just this was what happened in every aspect of american life whenever blacks found a way to earn money whites would come in in some capacity and, and destroy that this is not unusual and it's it's something i'm quite just due to the stories i'm quite familiar oddly enough with these like war strategies This is actually something I've been using for the book, um, which, like, The City is the Frontier by Charles Abram. Actually, I got this book from my aunt. It was in the back of my, uh, yeah, back in my grandmother's house. And, and it's funny, that book, City is the Frontier, was actually written and commissioned by the Ford Foundation. Um, 
to talk about the reurbanization, to basically write about what Detroit had done to both itself and its Black community uh, via trying to like fit itself into like being a city made for cars as opposed to walking. And the report that he was doing for Ford, I guess they didn't like what he had to say and he ended up publishing it as that book. Um, but it's been really helpful in understanding the first city in the nation to correct, like to collapse or one of the first like economic engines or distribution engines to like collapse the way Detroit did. And Birmingham where I'm from also had a collapse that was related to it due to the steel, like the lack of uh, steel production that was needed just because of like slowed down, like auto production and stuff. And my grandfather worked at that steel plant. Yeah. But yeah, with the rhythm analysis, it's a lot of things. It's me tracing my entire life, tracing my family's movements through the migration, moving to Chicago, Detroit, New York, um, and thinking about what happened in those cities when they went there, but also, I mean, my own migration up north, times like these generational migrations. That's, yes, that's literally why I'm here. I kind of got this sense that some sort of collapse was going to happen. I didn't really know what it was going to be. I thought it was something like Hurricane Sandy or something, but I don't know. But also I was attracted to like all the indie music up here that was also cascading down from like Toronto and um, Montreal. So it's, yeah, so New York kind of seemed like an obvious place to be closer to, I'll say closer to the future in the sense that like down in Alabama, like the city where I'm from, we got like a Dave and Buster's last year and like a Forever 21, like the year before that, like, <laughs> so there's like some huge lags here. like. And that's the thing I always try to bring up to people in these talks is like, when you're down in the deep south, you're like literally like in, like they're kind of like anti-futurist down there, which is like my whole idea of using techno is this like, techno could have only been made in Detroit, like, and like these metropolitan cities, like up north, like down south, it was all blues and yeah, big band jazz and yeah. That's kind of the beauty of being in both an abusive relationship with this country, but also, understanding that the future was a scam that was uh, set forth as a Marshall Plan after World War II. I mean, America's so funny. Like, they jump in with the last minute and they're like, yay, we won the war! And like, really, they're just like assholes that can't like, <laughs> like kick some people while they're down. And then the next war, they go and fight <laughs> like the Nazis, but they tell, they tell everyone that they beat the Nazis, but actually, they, like, Hitler got part of his ideas for the Holocaust from the Jim Crow laws in Birmingham, Alabama, where I'm from. And it's, it didn't have the audacity to like, set up like, what, like an American like forces network, like, like government, military run and funded, like, like radio and like playing black music into German and Euro European like airwaves, including their television with like black media. Um, it just, yeah, I mean, the future is literally just, it's like the Borg. It's like being inside of America's media cocoon and staring at its cinematic warfare and being fascinated by it, loving it. And I mean, that's why I'm a rhythm analyst. It's American history is so full of these cycles that like, sometimes with white people here, you just like look at a clock and like look at the date and you already know what's about to happen. 
Yeah, because I mean, the way I see house, well, I mean, from 1973 to 1985, it was all called progressive music, which was this idea of taking, even more so than the tech, it was literally going, Motown left it, Detroit in 1972 after the 67 race riots and bankrupted a bunch of people, but like, or, but also left a bunch of uh, gear and stuff left uh, in the city. So there's a bunch of studios left over, there's mastering plants left over, and techno emerges out of the sort of, uh, out of the rubble of the of this music industry. Like, like Ron Murphy, who did a lot of the mastering for uh, Underground Resistance, actually did mixing and mastering for Isaac Hayes' Hot, Hot Butter Soul. And Matt Mike from Underground Resistance was actually in Parliament Funkadelic and was signed to Motown. And so there's like a lot of these like structural connections to the, like the actual recording and, and like mixing and, and kind of production of, of black, historically black music that fits into techno that I don't think anyone's taking into consideration. Especially when you think about stuff like reel-to-reel cutting, which right, I think was more of a Chicago thing than it was a Detroit thing. Yeah, and it started as like a DJ, like a radio DJ thing, but also taking these giant funk and disco bands and going, okay, we can't have 20 people on stage. This costs too much money. And they're like, let's scale this down to reel-to-reel tapes. Eventually, let's just play the music and extract the parts we want and like, you know, play vinyl side by side. I was talking to John Collins from uh, Underground Resistance about a month ago, and he was saying that when he was coming up, people didn't mix tracks. They would play a track all the way through to the end and then play the next track. And there was like a short time to like sort of blend the tracks and that the the DJing kind of, and this idea of blending tracks kind of slowly came into place. It was actually probably more of a Jeff Mills innovation more than anything um, in the early eighties. And it was like, you know, it was Jeff Mills who was like kind of flipping, you know, tracks really quickly and like tossing vinyl to the side and like, you know, really mixing and matching parts. But prior to him, everyone was kind of stitching together real tapes and, and playing very slow, long, like they were playing songs to their completion on the radio, but also on like dance floors. I mean, and Frankie Knuckles is also like a billboard informant, as was like Delano Smith and a few other uh, dudes in the dance music scene. So they were, yeah, I mean, my whole point of techno was that it's completely different from this DJing thing that it got merged into later. Um, like, I mean, Rick Davis was a Vietnam vet that had defended a COINTEL Pro Lab in like Vietnam and came back to America and was looking at the hippie movement, looking at people like Charles Manson and being like, what's that over there? Like, like what are those drugs? Like, where did that come from? And Juan, yeah, and Juan Atkins is like a 19 year old that just read some cool books. And yeah, I mean, him and this Vietnam veteran who were, who was a decade older than him got together and started imagining worlds as, you know, the world around them was like shifting in a really fucked up way. I mean, I always have to remind people that by the time techno had happened, the FBI and, they, you know, had murdered Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, Fred Hampton. They had like kind of gone down the line and killed all the leaders and started a movement that this guy named Nelson George calls Post Soul, where there was a sort of post-Black civil rights, post-Black power movement um, motion towards integration where a bunch of Black people, my family included, started to gain middle-income wealth, was able to go to college for the first time. And techno for me is kind of one of those last moments of 
Black people maybe not being completely subsumed into modernity, except for the Deep South. Um, and that's kind of where I come in uh, with my story is to kind of come 30 years after one Atkins and Rick Davis like looked into the future and was like, okay, how do we make this like future music? And I come in 30 years later and tie up the knots using my parents as kind of a, my parents and my family as like a starting point for this and to kind of cage in this narrative of what techno, what it was supposed to be, what it ended up becoming through its globalization and kind of 30 years later, like reframing it. Um, and the book actually ends with that Carl Craig exhibition at Dia. Um, we had a really funny conversation about it where he was saying he wanted the exhibition to be like the tomb of techno at the end of the world. And I was like, cool, I'll write it in. Like, that's where it ends. And so anything happening from the EDM movement on, I don't know about that. Like, whatever's happening. Yeah, in this like, you know, ad, online ad funded, like music industry, like I don't, that's not techno, that's, what's well, music. But you know, that's the funny thing. One thing I found while writing the book, or but also while working at Mixmag, was that the whole industry crashed around 2000, or around 2001, between 1997 and 2001, so the dot-com bubble burst years. Um, which is why Beatport and a lot of these newer sites started to emerge. They were trying to get dead stock from an old industry and start to refinance it for an open online consumer base. Basically, anything 2001 afterwards for me is EDM. I find that America's psych psychological operations via this sort of plausible deniability of did we or did we not tamper with your history and, and like involvement is kind of, yeah, it's, I mean, it's reaching a tipping point to the point where I hope that everyone in the world watches what takes place soon and actually develops a sense of care for it. Um, because it is the end of the American story. It's the end of the epic of America. Um, precisely for all the reasons that we're talking about. And, and the thing is, I hope, I sincerely hope that South America, Canada, and the Europe, and hopefully one day Africa, can actually move forward as their own selves. Like, again, I was in Amsterdam at the beginning of the year last year and like was doing this talk and someone kind of mentioned like that I was talking, being an American exceptionalist. And I was like, you're saying that to me while wearing jeans and like drinking Coca-Cola. Like, it's... It just, let's all just say that, you know, America's been really naughty. We almost have to go, what is an American? And I actually draw the line at like around 1948 with like the New Deal and all of that. And the institution of like, you know, public health and financial reforms to set up and to get people out of the Great Depression and stuff where you're inside of these like houses, right? Like the suburban houses that are like built in straight lines. Everyone's going to these industrialized schools and they're all following their like clocks and working in the office. And 
I mean, I always joke the first generation to come out of the suburbs were serial killers and like hippies. Like a bunch of people who were like anti-war or they were like, you know, let's murder everything. <laughs> and it's, and the thing is, it's not necessarily the American people's fault. It's the city planning. It's the, it's the, it's, it's the planning. Like I won't even say city, it's just the planning. What's the technology and the origin of it? And that's kind of what's interesting to me is that I think everyone in the world kind of has to take a moment, like everyone in the world has to really just take a moment and go, radio, cinema, photography, even this idea of like the literary canon, the music canon, the music industry, like these are all American concepts. 24 hour television. But America did something to these structures and then exported them in a way that I think everyone is missing, kind of. And I think it's out of a sense of, yeah, wanting to have control over these histories when in fact, I mean, if America is the, the imperialist country we all say it is, I don't see how there isn't a cutoff point in every country that this country, is t that America has touched that doesn't, we all have a scar. You know, it's funny, someone, a European actually the other day told me that America was wrong, which is the popular belief of like how to read America. And I agreed with that until I sat and thought about it, especially like when I went to Amsterdam and saw their Wall Street and saw like, you know, one of like the colonial capitals of like Europe. And, and suddenly I was like, oh no, Europe is Rome. It literally grew out of the rubble of it. And that's what the thousand years of like warring and crusades and all that stuff was about. It's all trying to make sense of that last civilization. And America is a gross 500 year long mistake to the side. Yeah, and that's the thing. I, I like this to tell people, I realize I should tell people more often that I'm severely future shocked and have been my whole life. And reading Toppler's Future Shock really like, in college, like explained so much to me as to why like, like I cried for weeks after 9-11 because I was just like, what is that? Like, like, you know, to, yeah, to see something commercial. I got only flown once in my life at that point. It was like, oh, those can be like weaponized. Um, but no, that created a real glitch in culture. I mean, across the world, but it's particularly in America where, I mean, the future was officially over. That was the first sign of Y2K. And in fact, I mean, part of the reason why that 9-11 even happened was because computer systems did not exactly read quickly enough like that this thing was happening. I mean, we could say it's an inside job, but that's whatever. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff that was probably an inside job in this country, but... um. Well, and that's actually the, the the conceit of my rhythm analysis is trying to distribute texts and works that kind of shake people out of it. I don't know if it's working, but it's, yeah, hopefully a few people can see this coming and like think about their next steps as we like move forward. But it's kind of, it, it's funny because like Ting and I last year for um, my first record for Planet View, we wrote a, a book called uh, The Quarterly Reports. Um, which was like nicely funded by Artist Space. Um, so do that like little advertisement there. But um, 
But yeah, we wrote a chapter, four chapters across the four economic quarters of 2019, building up to what we thought was going to be economic crash in 2020. It's part of what happened with that, and this is kind of filling out the whole thesis of my work over the last few years, and why I've been like attacking the music industry the way I have, um, alongside with like white nationalism in America, because they are inextricably linked in a weird way through this idea of financialization and also cultural theft. But um, yeah, it's, I mean, Resident Advisor opens in 2001, Discogs opens in 2001, which I consider Resident Advisor to be like, at the time it was just like a kind of blog, but it grew into a ticketing service. They opened the ticketing site in 2008 as they tried to move into America. Um, Mixmag, the first dance music publication, the ones that wrote about techno the first in 1988, had to close their US offices, but also started covering like Ibiza and like all these sort of like big, like uh, like festival clubs that would eventually become what we saw in EDM in the 2010s. And like there was an eight year kind of like refinancing techno music, this music that was supposed to be black people in Detroit envisioning a different future or envisioning new cybernetic futures. It, it was being used to just, yeah, to finance white and European people dancing at the end of the world. When I say like I begrudgingly became a musician, it was because I wanted to write about this stuff at publications or really just write in general at music magazines, but I noticed this like complete misunderstanding of what music and culture looked like here. I mean, Mixmag moved to New York again after they closed their office in 97. They moved here again in 2016 and 17, and I was the editor there. And kept trying to explain to the other editors that you can't just expect EDM to be this like popular thing because you saw it on TV, that country music is not only the most popular music in the country, it has its own separate music industry from the rest of the recording industry. Um, and that, yeah, which was bombed by the way. <laughs> and that's the, exactly, and that's the thing, all the kids, like when I say I went to school with the Alabama Shakes and Civil Wars, like that's where they went after they got their, got signed to like Rough Trade and stuff, they went to Nashville. It's been a really interesting process working first with Kepler on building the foundations of the stuff and then of like this black understanding within the global village. And it's been very interesting after that to sort of break free from the collaboration to start uh, to, to have gained my own tools to learn how to use Ableton myself and to start producing music the way that it's just speaking the way I want to speak through music. but. Lately, I've kind of uh, lost that inspiration. I don't really feel like people deserve music right now. So I'm trying to pull back and quit. Part of the reason I perform the way I do, where I like actually walk away from the desk, I'll just go to the bathroom or like get a beer or do whatever, is because I, I generally hate every person I'm performing for. Like I, I hate like, even when I'm at clubs, I hate watching the people around me because it's a thing of 
going back to the fact that I leapt into the future and moved to New York, I saw a bunch of people who had access to concerts and had access to music and all this stuff for so, and these fabricated identities that were marketed to them for so long that I don't see people a lot of times and I get pissed off that I'm like making money performing for people as opposed to having a moment. And a lot of times it's in bad faith where I don't necessarily trust, or I didn't necessarily trust my audience to just chill out and listen because I was so pissed off at the idea that I wasn't being a journalist and like the fact that I was up there and you have to see me and it's just, none of that was what was supposed to happen. I was supposed to be like, like a data thief in the background, just writing reviews of all this stuff. Um, so no, a lot of it was not necessarily antagonistic. It was just me doing whatever I wanted to do at the time that it, or not even what I wanted to do, what needed to happen at that time. Usually I use a, a tablet, um, like an iPad with Core Gadget and a few granular synthesizers or granular um, apps that allow me to kind of control sound like very haptically. So there's constant finger movement that there's no way to do a four on the floor beat because it's all so haptic and each finger is kind of doing a different thing. Um, so it's kind of like piano, but, uh, but individual, but also quantized through the, the tablet. Then the tablet is run into an interface where I mix it in like as many channels as possible in Ableton. So it's a whole like multi-channel mixer thing where I'm able to do like stereophonic kind of stretching and delaying of sounds and kind of playing with the latency of it and the qualities. Cause yeah, you get a lot of like interesting kind of like fuzz from the fact that I'm using like a, a an aux cord. So I can oftentimes capture and resample those sounds like really quickly. And part of the reason I have to move around the room is to like hear all of these different angles, both inside the headphones and out. Um, and so, yeah, and a lot of times, like, you'll see me walking around, I'll kind of just like jerk. And it's because like a sound hit me. I'm like, cool, I have to go back and like get that sound that caused this affect. And that's something actually I want people to understand about techno is that it's meant to broadcast world systems between people across telecommunication lines, similar to the way that Nate Turner did during the slave rebellions uh, when he use the Bible, the word of God, and sang hymns and would like shoot his voice across the woods to another faction of slaves to direct them in in war. Um, and Sun Ra is the same way when he's conducting a band. Coltrane is the exact same way when he's leading the band and kind of doing the sheets of sound thing where he's like, you know, colliding like all sorts of like rhythms and harmonies using the room as, as an instrument to direct the band. That was kind of my way at at beginning of process of eventually if COVID hadn't happened, I wanted to start working with like like a live like Southern marching band and with dancers and kind of like directing them in this way as like a as like an electronic drum major. Um but yeah we'll see how, how the world fares with COVID and if that'll ever emerge with me with like a two hundred piece like marching band. I told myself years ago that if I ever had to jump out of the music industry precisely because it was too racist to allow me to like, you know, kind of do my work and write about techno the way I am now writing about it in this book. Um, if I ever, you know, got kicked out of the music industry, I would start making music as speaker music. Um, and I just held it in my back pocket because I felt like in this, in this gold rush of, you know, non-fungible dance music, 
I thought that I could be the only ethical person and not make music. I thought I could sit back and actually kind of like you, just like, you know, go through the, the, the dig through just the glut of music and actually spend some time with it and love it and study it and even get to know some of the people and get to know them and, you know, break up this whole journalistic integrity thing and, and recognize that like, there are just too many musicians for us not to be getting kind of personal about this. Yeah, the theological part of my work, I think a lot of people haven't touched. Maybe because a lot of people aren't hardcore Christians like they used to be. Because, like, I mean, I grew up Southern Baptist. My dad's a preacher. My dad's dad's a preacher. Like, it's it's one of those things, like, I've read the Bible front and back, like, many times since I was a kid. And Yeah. And the thing is, you go through all these techno releases, that so many times you see them thank God for the ability to make music. That's something I noticed over and over again with Strexia being like, thank God I can do this. Or Keith Tucker from Ox88 being like, thank God for music. gives up the right to belong in his time in order to come to our time to find the mothership connection. The thief becomes an angel, an angel of history. The data thief can visit the old world and the new, but he cannot be a part of either. He doesn't know this is his problem, but when he makes his last trip to Africa, you will. I mean, at this point, like, I've kind of seen all of my interviews, writings, and like, all the works as like, distress signals. Now let us rededicate ourselves to the long and bitter, but beautiful struggle for our new world. In town. What does Webster say about soul? All I want is a good home and a wife and a children and some food to feed them every night. After all is said and done, build a new route to China if they'll have you. Who will survive in America? 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 Who will survive in America?